So imagine with me that you're an owner of a property with lots of land. A, a man comes to you pleading for work. He owes a great deal of money and he needs work as soon as he can get it. Well, you have compassion on him. You clothe him, you allow him to come into your house, you feed him, and you obviously, you give him work. And at first, he responds with a great deal of joy and appreciation. He's very happy for all that you've done for him. Yet as the years pass, his work becomes more shoddy. He seems to be half-hearted in his work. He's late coming and early going. The hedges are half-trimmed and the grass is unevenly cut. You have asked for the trees to be cut a certain way, but he always seems to do it his own way. He doesn't listen to you. One day you ask him, what's happened? And it's clear that from when you've talked to him, he's forgotten all the good that he's done, you've done for him. Sometimes we can be like this man was, but towards God. We can be half-hearted in our worship because we all too easily forget the salvation we've received and struggle to humble ourselves before the Lord. In my message today, I'll be speaking of from Micah 6, 1 to 8, where God wants his worshipers to repent of their half-hearted worship, remember their salvation, and humbly walk in his ways. So th this message today will be split into those three main points. The first point will be repent for half-hearted worship. The second point will be to remember the his God's salvation. And the third point will be to walk humbly in his ways. So repent for half-hearted worship. Chapter 6, 1 to 8 is structured as a courtroom case. God is the prosecutor that brings forth the case. The people of Judah are the accused, and Micah the prophet speaks on their behalf. Within the book of Micah, chapter 6 is the beginning of the last charge that God brings forth in the book. The book of Micah has been written to both Israel and Judah to warn them of the judgment that will come if they continue in their sin, but remind them of the hope that God will bring after they're judged. The book of Micah consists of three cycles. Each of them begin with judgment and end with a note of hope. In each cycle, as each cycle progresses, both the judgment and hope escalate. The first cycle is from chapter 1 to chapter 2, the second cycle, chapter 3 to chapter 5, and the present cycle that we'll be talking about today, where our text is found, is in chapter 6 and chapter 7. Each cycle begins with a charge that God brings forth. In, in 1 verse 2, he addresses the nation, saying, Hear you peoples, all of you. In chapter 3 verse 1, he addresses the leadership of the nation. He says, Hear you heads of Jacob, and the rulers of the house of Israel. And in this text, in chapter 6, verse 1, he addresses all of the people, the common men and women, to hear what the Lord says. This present chapter is the last chance of the people of Israel and Judah to repent before they're judged. 
And as I've mentioned, the Lord has an indictment against his people. In the first three verses, that word is mentioned several times. It says, hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, for the Lord has an indictment with his people. He gives the people the opportunity to plead their case to him and defend themselves. This is a serious and a public case. The people have nowhere to hide from their verdict. This is shown by the fact that the mountains, the hills, and the enduring foundations of the earth serve as witnesses. They have grown tired of God and their worship. Look with me in verse 3. It reads, O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. God compassionately calls out to his people and asks them, why, why are you tired of me, guys? They're worshiping him half-heartedly. They're unsure if they really want to continue their relationship with God. We know the issue is to do with worship because of a couple of reasons. First, in verses 6 to 7, the people's response to God's charge is to do, do with worship, as we'll speak to later on. Secondly, in a similar passage in Isaiah 42, 22 to 24, God brings the same charge against the people that they're weary with him, and he relates it with worship. I'm going to read this text with, for you. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary with me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Really, God should be the one that's burdened. Yet in this text, in Micah 6 and in Isaiah 43, the people are the weary ones. They're accusing God of wrong because these people are going through the motions in their worship. As we've learned throughout our series in the prophets, God has made a covenant with his people. Peter Gentry defines covenant. A covenant is an agreement between two parties marking a binding, official, and permanent relationship that is marked by faithfulness, loyal love, obedience, and trust. Yet while God is the loyal covenant partner, his people are half in, half out. They're like someone who wants the benefits of a relationship, but not the obligations. God is like a spouse who's saying, why am I such a chore to you? Why are you so bored, so disinterested in me, so done with being with me? Why? Their actions are expressed throughout the book of Micah, make it quite evident that God is a burden rather than a delight. While they claim to worship their God publicly, they worship other gods privately. Worship carved images are something that's shown throughout the book of Micah. Also, their lives do not match up with their confession. While they worship God on Sundays, they take bribes on Mondays, literally. For example, in Micah chapter 3, verse 11, it says about the people's leadership. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? 
No disaster shall come, come upon us. They claim God's protection while rejecting his commandments. And it's certainly not just the leaders of the nation. The entire nation is known for their ungodliness. In Micah 7.2, it says the situation's gotten so bad that Micah can say, the godly is perished from the earth and there is no upright among mankind. These people are both idolatrous and unjust. But now I want to pose you a question. Are you displaying in your life that God is a burden by chasing after other idols? An idol doesn't have to be a carved image. It can be something that all our love and affections go towards. While you worship God on Sundays, is your life marked by chasing after other things for your satisfaction from Monday to Saturdays? Perhaps all your time and energy has gone into your job while spending any time with the Lord is a burden. Maybe you're constantly entertaining yourself and God isn't really doing it for you anymore. And God says to you, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Or is it injustice that marks your life? Injustice is done when we idolize something and we're willing to do, to, to do anything to get it. For example, in Micah 2.2, it says, they covet fields, they have a desire, and seize them and houses and take them away. Their desire for other people's stuff leads them to running over anyone who gets in the way of their desire. Are you known by injustice in your work, in your family, in society? Is there injustices that you've committed that no one knows except for God? If so, God wants you to repent and follow him. And so, so, so far, we've seen how these people are expressing their weariness with God. But the question is, why are these people weary with God? Well, first, as you might guess, their circumstances are difficult. Their nation is corrupt from top to bottom. They can't go to the store without facing some type of corruption. The mighty Assyrian army is threatening their physical security. And they wonder if it's worthwhile giving their all to God, since it feels as if they've received so little in return. This has led to a situation where they, they feel that God is a very difficult-to-please master, He's one that never seems to be satisfied. And their weariness of God is shown if you look at verses 6 to 7. We'll look at this more in depth later on. But as the people respond to the charge that God brings, there's a series of rhetorical questions that are a mix of both remorse, sarcasm, and blame. The answers given display that they view God as very difficult to please. They start with burnt offerings with calves a year old. They say, shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? But then their sarcasm is dripping in verse 7 when they say, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands rivers of oil? This is a ridiculous amount of rams and oil. And they're saying, like, nothing could ever please you, God. And then at the very end of their their response in verse, the end of verse 7, it's downright sinful and absurd. They say, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? 
They think that God is such a hard master that he requires them to sacrifice their firstborn. Really, what it comes down to, they don't seem to think that there's any way that they can really please God. God is a a master to them that can't ever be pleased. And is that you? Are you half-hearted in your worship because you think that God is difficult to please? Are you beginning to be half-hearted in your worship because you believe that God is withholding something good from you? If so, God wants you to repent of your half-hearted worship and come to him once again. He also wants you wants to offer you hope and reflect upon all that he's done for you. And that's what he does in verses 4 to 5. In verses 4 to 5, my second point, he calls you to remember your salvation. To remember your salvation. In verses 4 to 5, God answers their charges that they have against him by pointing to the salvation that he's done for them. The people's charges against God are met with him recounting a little history of all that God's done for his people through the years. Read Micah 6, 4 to 5 with me. For I brought you up from Egypt and redeemed you from the house of Israel. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, O my people. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shechem to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. God recounts some of the major events that he's taken his people through. He begins with his rescue of his people from the land of Egypt. He wants the people to remember that their ancestors were once slaves. They were once laying brick after brick under the watchful eyes of the Egyptian taskmasters who had whips in their hands. But God saved them from this tyranny. He saved them from this oppression and from their enemies. And he brought plagues upon their enemies and brought prosperity to his people eventually. And God wants his people to remember that even despite the continual disobedience of Israel, he gave them leaders, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, who interceded on behalf of the people, who led the people, and who God used to shepherd and lead the people out of the land of Egypt to help rescue them. He also wants them to remember the evil that Balak had devised against them, this enemy king. He recruited a prophet, Balaam, to curse God's people. Yet God does this miracle and he uses this pagan prophet to bless his people instead. He's for his people. He doesn't want his people to be cursed. He wants them to be blessed. He, he also wants them to remember when God miraculously split open the Jordan River and allowed his people to cross from Shechem into Gilgal and then into the promised land. God's people had forgotten their history. They'd forgotten the greatness of the salvation that God's given them. God knows that when they remember their salvation, they'll know that God's not a burden. They won't be wearied by God. They'll know that God's not withholding good from them. They'll know that God's not against them, but he's for them. Christian, do you remember your salvation? 
Do you remember that you were once an enemy of God, that you were a slave in your sin, in your passion and desires of the flesh? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and you walked in rebellion against God and his ways. Your life was headed towards eternal destruction, but God in his mercy came and he rescued you. He sent his precious son to live the perfect life for you and die on the cross for your sins. Remember your salvation. Christian, do you remember the joy that you felt when you first trusted Jesus? When all you wanted to do was to live for him and nothing else mattered? Do you remember when you appreciated the greatness of what Christ had done for you? For some, that was a day or an hour. Do you remember that day or hour? Do you remember the joy in your heart? For others, it might have been a season. But, but many of us have a time when God's commandments were not a chore, but a delight. For many of us, God was such a delight when we first believed because we had a clear understanding of the wretchedness of our sin and the greatness of what Christ had done for us and the amazing work of Christ and what he did for us on the cross. He saved us. And it's so important to consistently recall that salvation, to recall what you've been saved from and what you've been saved to, that one day we'll be in heaven with Christ forever. And the lies that the devil can tempt us to, to believe about God are countered when we think about the salvation we've received in Christ. You may believe God is unjustly withholding good from me, but Romans 8.33 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? For those who attempt to believe that God is never pleased with you, Christ was willing to die on the cross on your behalf. God chose you before the foundation of the earth that Christ would die for your sins and you'd be his. This demonstrates that God is not ashamed to call you friend and Christ is not ashamed to call you brother. For us who the demands of discipleship, when the demands of discipleship seem to be great, reflect upon the greatness of our salvation. Jerry Bridges says, it is only the joy of hearing the gospel and being reminded our sins are forgiven in Christ that will keep the demands of discipleship from being drudgery. This, the, our salvation, what Christ has done for us, is the fuel that propels us in this Christian life. W without it, you're like a car, that tank is almost about to uh, get, run out of fuel. And how does our church remember that God has done for us in salvation? Well, you've done it today. You've worshiped God in song and you've took communion. And you've done these things particularly to remember what Christ has done for you. That his body was broken for you and his blood was shed for you. And as an individual, we should also consider regularly incorporate into our devotional life prayers about the gospel. Make it a discipline to consistently recount 
what God has done for you. It doesn't have to be on what Christ has done for you and apply it to your life. Pray through the gospel on a daily basis and apply it to the day ahead. For some of you today, it's not that you need to remember your salvation. You need to first experience this salvation that God offers. You may view this God as one who is a burden to follow. All you see when you think of Christianity is a list of things that you can't do. But friend, God offers you a salvation that is far greater than any sin or ever, any vice ever could be. Although you've rebelled against him with your sin, he offers your sin to be cast into the depths of the sea and your iniquity to be pardoned by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He offers an escape from eternal destruction and an entrance into eternal life with Jesus Christ. He offers you joy in this life that is greater than any fleeting pleasure that the world can offer and a savior who will forever be by your side. So turn from your sins today and believe in Jesus as your savior. It'll be worth it, my friend. Believe on this Jesus that is willing to save sinners from their sins. The third point that I have for you today is to humbly walk in God's ways. Humbly walk in his ways. So far we've seen that God wants us to repent of our half-hearted worship and to remember his salvation. But here we see that God wants us to humbly walk in his ways. In verses 6 and 7, we see that people want to offer God one-time sacrifices. They offer God an abundance of oils, rams, and even their firstborn children. They want to buy God off with acts of supreme sacrifices. But God doesn't want one-time sacrifices, but he wants a relationship that is made up of genuine commitment, faithfulness, loyalty, and love. They treat God as a corrupt official who is willing to look over their transgressions and that he, who can be bought off for the right price. So they offer God a lot. As, I, as I've said, they offer God their burnt offerings, their calves, their oils, their rams. But they don't offer God some key things. They don't offer God what he actually wants. They don't offer God to get rid of the idols in their lives. They don't offer God to lead lives of justice or humility. They offer God everything except for what he wants. They think their sacrifices can appease God on their terms, not God's terms. But what God wants is a loyal, committed relationship, not a summer fling. He wants people who are willing to embrace him and to reflect his character in the world. This relationship that God calls his people to embrace starts with humility. Please read Micah 6, 8 with me. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? In response to the people's list of one-time sacrifices, God calls for lives that submit to him and reflect his character. The first two lines deal with how 
God wants us to treat other people. I will address those. But I first want to think about the last line, because I think that's very important to this whole text. This is the posture of humility that God calls his people to. The worship that the people gave was not in submission to God's word. For example, they offered like the pagan nations did their own firstborn for my transgressions. Yet Deuteronomy 18.10 says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. This was explicitly um, a sin before God. They don't want to submit themselves to God's word, although God makes it clear what he wants. It says in Samuel 15.22, God says, has the, Lord a God, has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey God is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. In their pride, they offered God what they saw fit to offer him. And Jesus pronounces judgment upon the Pharisees for doing a similar thing. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, mercy, justice, faithfulness, and love. And isn't that a mark of half-hearted worship? Lord, take my Sunday mornings, but please don't touch my savings. I'll be hospitable to my family, but I won't forgive that church member who's offended me. We need to be humble and submit to all of God's commandments and all of God's words and worship on his terms, not our terms. There's also a need for humility as it relates to do justice and to love kindness. Julian's pointed out a variation of this example in a past sermon, and I thought it was worth repeating. There are a lot of people in our world who loudly proclaim that they are people of justice. There are many in our world who loudly proclaim they are people of love. Yet there are relatively few in our world who state they want to walk humbly before their God. God wants our concerns for both justice and love to be ordered under his word, under his rule, and starting with humility. It starts with coming to him and asking, what is your definition of justice, Lord? What is your definition of love, Lord? Not our own, but doing it God's ways, not our way. He wants us to do justice his way, and he wants us to love others his way. However, as you know, we can't do that on our own. One author said about these, these verses that they kind of pronounce a death sentence. And it's right, who can possibly live up to them? It's not just by trying harder that we, that we can do these things, but by humbly confessing where we fall short. By humbly coming to the Lord and asking him to help us. There is nobody who can say we've acted as justly and as loving as God commands. But there was one who did, and that was Christ. Christ was the one who did perfect justice. He was the one who was just in all of his dealings. He healed the sick, cared for the poor, and spent time with all types of people. people. 
He loved so much that he was willing to come down from heaven, live a life of humility, and then die on the cross for his enemies. What greater love is this? And that's the love that we can humbly come to and say, Lord, I can't love like you do or do justice like you do on my own, but I need your help. And that's where humility is key. God's people are to humbly walk in his ways, but what exactly are his ways? Well, God wants his half-hearted, weary worshipers to reflect his very character. It is interesting that these two words to do justice, or these two phrases, to do justice and to love kindness, in many ways summarizes what the book of Micah is all about. While Nahum is about the justice of God and Jonah is about the love of God, Micah is about the love and justice of God. And this is what his people are to characterize. And we see this throughout the book. God is just. In verse 1 of the book, Micah's name is mentioned. And the short form in the Hebrew means, who is a God like you? In the very next verse, God then shows what he's like. He's just. And he's come to judge evil on the earth. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. God explains throughout the book that as a just God, he sees their injustice and must hold it to account because they're constantly asking him to overlook their injustices because, he's God's, because they're God's people. But he can't do that. He says in chapter 6, verse 10 to 13, right after this passage, Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales? Full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I will strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. Throughout the book, God sees the injustice that nobody else does. He sees women who lose their properties. He sees when his people lie, people take bribes. And God wants his people to also care about walking justly when nobody's looking. He wants his people to fill their taxes out in a just manner. He wants students to complete the online manner. He wants people not just to tweet about justice, but to do it. And it's also helpful to note that in the New Testament, um, this is just a helpful note about justice, that justice does seem to be in concentric circles. First, you are to be just those who are closest to you, their family, and then towards those in the church and then wider society. For example, in Galatians 6.10, it says, So then, as we have offered good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Now, we are supposed to do good to people who aren't in our church, who aren't in our family. We, we are. And as our church, 
Um, one of the areas that we do this is in the pregnancy care center. We, we, we help moms who are just looking for help in, the, in helping to take care of them when they're pregnant. So yeah, you could really help in that. And, per, but, and perhaps God has inclined your heart to help bring justice in specific ways to poor and needy of our society. Praise God for that. And may God bless you as you seek to do justice to all. Yet, please remember that you also need to act justly and righteously towards those who are closest to you. In your family, at work, and at church, and in the relationships no one sees but the Lord. But the book of Micah does not just say that God is a God of justice. It also says that he's a God of covenant love, has said. Read Micah 7, 18 to 20 with me. It's such a beautiful way to end this book. It reads like this. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you've sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This God's merciful. He pardons the iniquity of his people. He casts it into the depths of the sea. And the same word has said that is used to describe God's covenant love is the word that shows up here, where to love has said, to love kindness, love God's steadfast love, and that shapes how we love everyone around us. It shapes how we love our church members, it shapes how we love our family, it shapes how we love our society. We're to love others as Christ loved us. So seek by God's grace to love others as Christ has loved you and he'll help you. So friend, as we come to an end of this sermon, I just want to say this. If God is a landowner and you're the employee that is half-hearted in your work and forgetful of all that he's done for you, know that this owner is one that extends second chances. He's one who loves you. He's one who'll cast your, your sin into the depths of the sea and pardon your iniquity. So trust in him. Repent of your sin, your half-hearted worship, and trust in your blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. Please pray with me.